thank you so much for each uh, taking the time uh, to uh, join us together. It would be more fun if we were in person eating lunch together, uh, but this is uh, the way we are able to do this um, quite easily. I'm Beth Fogelmiller. Normally the host is Erwin Lopez, uh, but he is on his way to Guatemala uh, for some uh, family visiting there. This is our fourth Table Talk, a conversation on race. The goal of these webinars is to uh, increase our awareness uh, and our proficiency in uh, anti-racism work uh, to support uh, those who are committing uh, to uh, becoming more anti-racist as a part of their discipleship, as a part of their ministry and their lives. And because we believe that uh, anti-racism is a piece of how we love God and love neighbor. So today is part two of um, looking at the history of race in Florida. Today, our very special guest is Dr. Ann Burkholder. Now, Ann and I have been friends for 30 years. I'm probably supposed to call you Dr. Burkholder. I will. Um, Please don't. <laughs> in a sort of a high level race, uh, no pun intended, through um, the history of race in Florida so that we have some context. <laughs> Obviously, these are not designed to be incredibly detailed. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. So Dr. Ann Burkholder is going to be retiring soon after, can it be 14 years on this, <laughs> the faculty at uh, Candler School of Theology at Emory? Um, Ann, is your official title the Associate Dean of Methodist Studies? Yes. As well as the professor in the practice of ecclesiology. That means right. she teaches folks how to do church stuff uh, and church leadership. Right. She um, has literally has written a book uh, on uh, church polity, polity being the fancy way of saying how we do stuff um, in church. And she has, over the course of her career, uh, her vocation, served as a local church pastor, uh, both in uh, urban and county seat settings. She has been an urban minister, which propelled her into disaster recovery when Hurricane Andrew barreled uh, into the southern part of our state. She has been a district superintendent, the director of Connectional Ministries, a mother, a grandmother, and a really good friend uh, to not just me, but to many, many people. Uh, her responsibilities at Candler allow her and require her to assist students navigate the process of ordination and uh, local pastors to navigate the process of certification or licensing or credentialing. I, I don't know the details of all the above, <laughs> all of that, all of that stuff. So <clears throat> Anne's particular interests, um, at least more recently, have included pastoral ethics, United Methodist polity, global Methodism, and these days, especially, the, the word is intersectionality. It's mm -hmm. the overlap. If it were a Venn diagram, it would be the overlap of the issues of race, gender, and sexuality in the history of the United Methodist Church and of Methodism. So, Anne, we are so grateful uh, for you being willing to do this. You are a peer, a colleague, and a leader, and we're uh, glad for our time together. So, Anne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Beth. And it is definitely Anne with everyone. I'm one of your colleagues from the Florida Conference. So none of that doctor stuff. Also, I'm going to be retired, so I won't be needing it as much anymore anyway. 
Um, I'm very, very privileged to have this opportunity to do this very brief, very broad um, brush of uh, actually the relationship between events in the history of Florida and its impact also on our denomination. Um, I'm a student of this topic. I am not an authority. So I hope the session challenges you to ask a different set of questions about your community and your community of faith and even about yourself. Um, aside from my interest in Methodist history and polity, I started to get very interested in these stories through Ancestry.com and uncovered owners of enslaved people in my own family lineage, Confederate soldiers, great, great uncles who had died at Gettysburg and at Chickamauga and stories that were never passed down to me. Um, and in addition, during my time as pastor of Memorial United Methodist Church in Fernandina Beach, when we celebrated its 175th anniversary, uh, we, we uncovered a rich and complex history uh, with neighboring Trinity United Methodist Church just two blocks away. It, was an, it is an African-American con congregation. No one had carried forward the story or kept and protected the story of the relationship between these two churches, except for the matriarchs of the Trinity Church. So this session is a prompt, get interested in the deeper, deeper histories of your communities and areas and ask the questions like, why have the vast majority of African-American churches been located in the upper central part of Florida? Why haven't we been able to establish substantial and sustainable ministries with local tribes, the Seminoles? And what roles might Methodists have played in the toleration of the massacres and lynchings and Klan activity that took place in the territory and the state, if not participated in them themselves? So what do the answers to these kinds of questions uh, that you uncover lead to, and how can they help the conference move forward with our concern for anti-racism and inclusion? So I want to, believe me, this is gonna be brief and far-reaching and wide, not as deep as I would love to go. There's enough here for an entire course, uh, which I won't bore you with, not bore you with, but I won't be able to share you with, with you. The very first era when the Spanish arrived in the 1500s, during that time, there were seven indigenous tribes in the Florida Peninsula. Over three landings on the East Coast during the 1500s by the Spanish brought enslaved persons to the continent or to the North American continent. Now that's in the 1500s, and especially this happened in 1565 with the third landing in the St. Augustine area. These people were primarily Caribbean and African. But in addition, the Spanish captured and exported indigenous people for enslavement back to the areas of the Caribbean and Central America. Now, how would the Spanish do this and why? The Spanish originally had a different understanding of slavery. Enslavement was the result of war and conquest. Enslaved persons were not chattel. They were never defined that way. 
um, by the early Spanish. And they were eventually able to own property and even buy their way out of their enslavement. So for example, the establishment of Fort Mose on the north part of St. Augustine as a community of free blacks by the leaders of St. Augustine would make sense to the Spanish mindset, even as they were exporting indigenous people to other parts of the continent. And in addition, the concept of race that prevented the intermarriage of persons of different hues was not even a concern. It wasn't even a concept. So you had a lot of intermarriage uh, between um, indigenous persons, people from Africa, people from the Caribbean. So it therefore makes sense that when the British invaded the Eastern seaboard, and this is during the 1700s off and on, it was originally led by Oglethorpe who, who basically, who um, planted Savannah <laughs> where it is and designed Savannah. That during the later part of the 1700s, many of the Maroons and Mulatto citizens began immigrating to Matanzas and Havana, Cuba. So some of that rich heritage exported themselves out of the peninsula um, and became a part of the Cuban culture. Now the next era following the war of 1812 and 14, when the US finally kicked the British out of the country um, <clears throat> until 1845 is this time frame of that that includes the original planting of Methodism in Florida. So East Florida, which is basically the Florida conference boundaries as we have them today, once again is a possession of the Spanish during this period. Runaway slaves have found their way into the peninsula, establishing a few of their own vibrant communities and farms. West Florida, what we call the Panhandle, is a literally different geographical and political territory, and it relates more directly to Alabama and Mississippi. The first two of the so-called Seminole Wars takes place during this era up until 1845. The first is between 1817 and 1818. British forts were still located along the Gulf Coast of East Florida. And <clears throat> at one point in 1816, um, there is an interchange with a fort that had been abandoned by the British and where it was now housing runaway slaves, mostly from other parts of East Florida and South Georgia, as well as indigenous tribal people who had been um, in cahoots with the British. So the British leave, turn the fort over to this group of people. Um, it becomes called the Negro Fort. And during this seven day um, period in July of 1816, uh, US forces, um, uh, attack from land and just cannot overturn uh, the leaders of the fort. So the US Navy uh, has a gunboat that comes along and starts barreling cannons into the fort and it hits an ammunition depot, fire burns, 300 women and children 
mostly women and children and some men are killed in that episode. Uh, the Seminole War really moves then out and more broadly into 1817 and 18, when Andrew Jackson is wanting to uh, remove the tribes from the northern tier of Florida and get them off uh, out of there and, north and south Georgia and eastern Alabama out to the west. Um, let's see. Uh, and eventually that happens. <clears throat> so the northern tier of the territory is now safe for resettlement by whites and a few free blacks. But it's important to note that as the US captures this land and the Spanish releases it, that the Spanish understanding of slavery is replaced with the original British colonial understanding of slavery imported in the 1600s, that of chattel slavery, that of the ownership of human beings as property. Now in 1821, the Spanish turn over the territories of both East and West Florida to the US. And immediately the Mississippi Conference takes on the task of missionizing uh, the Panhandle and Alabama and the South Carolina that becomes, and the part of South Carolina that becomes the Georgia Conference takes on the work of sending missionaries to the northeastern and northwestern corner of East Florida, which is why Fernandina Beach is so important, as well as the Trinity churches and the other churches in Tallahassee. This answers the question, though, of why the panhandle has always been a part of a different annual conference, because historically, it's always been a different geographical area. How it ended up becoming the same state, I don't know. That's beyond my pay grade um, or current amount of time I have to research it. But um, <clears throat> Florida becomes a state in 1845, including the panhandle. But Methodism keeps Western Florida as a part of the Alabama conference that originally was missionized by Mississippi. Methodist bands and societies continue to spread a little south about as far as the Gainesville area. A few circuit riders have difficulties with indigenous peoples. One or two are killed. One family we know of uh, was wiped out as well. Um, but they continue to push south. At the same time, chattel slavery, while not yet legalized, is in full swing. Formerly free and enslaved Blacks move south, link up with tribes, and are sometimes enslaved by the tribes as well. So none of this is just clean and easy. The push further and further south into the peninsula by white pioneers, followed quickly by Methodist missionaries, results in the Second Seminole War from 1838 to 1842. This is the war that involves Osceola, Chief Osceola, and the bands that ambushed and killed General Dade and his entire company of troops as they moved from Tampa to Ocala. If you're from the Northeast, you know of Clinch Fort that's up in Nassau County. Well, that is named for General Clinch, who was also involved in the Seminole War, this one in particular, who moved to the East Coast 
and uh, was instrumental in capturing Osceola, who was then imprisoned at St. Augustine. Another person involved in this was a man by the name of James Gadsden, a South Carolinian grandson of a Revolutionary War hero who was involved in the first Seminole War, but also was involved here in the Second Seminole War because he became a planter. And if that name is familiar to you, it's worth looking up in the Wikipedia. This is the same person who was involved in the Gadsden Purchase that Gadsden County is named for. Um, and he was an avid, avid um, advocate for, uh, for chattel slavery. All of this ends in some respects um, in 1842 with the pre-established central Seminole tribal reservation. We had a reservation up in the North that was wiped out in the first war, a reservation here in the South, I mean, in the central part of the state that's wiped out. The Seminoles are forced to move further South, mostly to the Southwest. And over 3000 indigenous peoples are moved out of Florida to the West, our own version of the Trail of Tears. That's 1842. I want you to hear the connection between these dates. That's 1842. 1844 is the Methodist Episcopal Church General Conference that splits between the MEC North and the MEC South over the issue of slavery. At this general conference, the Florida Conference is also established. Um, it is split from what is then the Georgia Conference and it immediately joins the MEC South. So this is a conference that has no linkage to the MEC up to this point, other than the missionaries that came South. Uh, let's see, and in 1845, Florida, including the Panhandle, becomes a state and chattel slavery becomes a legal institution. The Third Seminole War is fought in 1857 to 58 under the leadership of Billy Bowlegs with the conclusion of this war, uh, mean, meaning that there are maybe 300 Seminoles left in the state um, and they have been now pushed out of the Southwest area of our peninsula to make room for more white settlers. During the Civil War, uh, maybe one or two small battles are fought. The Battle of Olusky in 1864 is the one I'm familiar with. Its residents were increasingly joined by AWOL Confederate soldiers and more runaway slaves. Some Florida regiments do move northward and participate in the war, but Florida is a distinct land from the deep south and it's engaged its direct engagement in the Civil War. How am I doing time-wise? Whoop, I'm gonna talk fast. <laughs> um, now, the post-Civil War through Jim Crow and civil rights. Yeah, I said it was gonna be a broad brush. Now pay attention to this next date. Now we all celebrate Juneteenth, the date when emancipation finally reached Texas. That was a date in June. I can't remember the exact date. It must be a teen, 15th or 19th, in 1865. Listen to this. Guess when it took place in Florida? May 20th, 
1865. Only a month earlier was slavery finally uh, eliminated from Florida. And this was necessary for Florida to make their decision later on to then rejoin the Union. Reconstruction lasted less time in Florida than in some other states. It quickly enacted black codes um, and debt peonage was legal uh, well through Jim Crow. These rules uh, controlled the lives of both formerly enslaved and free African-Americans. In the meantime, the MEC North and South, our two denominations are fighting over property rights all throughout the South but it's not even an issue in Florida because we were always a part of the MEC South. MEC North missionaries begin their work coming down through the Southern states and come down into Florida and start establishing black and white congregations. And as they do this, we discover that the MEC South is encouraging their black members to leave and join either the CME uh, church or the AME church, um, primarily the CME church. Um, but many, many uh, move to the MEC and the black congregations that they start. So in 18, this is critical. In 1877, the black and white churches of the MEC North separate to form two race-based conferences. This is a part of what happened in the MEC North in the late 1800s and early 1900s when they separated out their black churches into their own districts and conferences. It's important to note the irony that when the central jurisdiction was established, that it was based on a model that came from the MEC North Church. Originally, the black districts and conferences had white bishops, but by the 1920s, they had black bishops. And one of the pushes against the reunification by the South was that they would not accept the leadership of black bishops because now we had them in the MEC North, albeit leading black districts and conferences. So what then happens is you end up <laughs> with a black MEC conference, a white MEC conference, and the MEC South conference all overlapping itself, each other. And it wasn't until the, re the merger with the EUB in 1968, when the central jurisdiction was eliminated, that the three to four different conferences that overlapped each other finally all became a single conference known as our Florida Conference. Uh, whoop. Okay, I'm not gonna go into the detail of all of what happened in Jim Crow. Uh, there were three major massacres. There were uh, lynchings. There was the assassination of Harry T. Moore and his wife Harriet, who was doing work for the NAACP investigations um, of the lynchings. There was complicity between some Methodists and members of the Klan. 
The Klan was its strongest in Orlando and the Miami areas, but there are stories of Tampa churches where the Klan processed silently into the white congregation and um, moved out and stood silently and then exited just to intimidate the congregations. Um, the later years of the civil rights movement witnessed the bus boycott in Tallahassee, demonstrations in Sarasota about equal access to beaches, legal challenges from the public schools. And then we merge with the EUB in 1968 and have to figure out ourselves how to become an integrated church. I'm going to finish at that point. <laughs> wow. And thank you for that amazing flyover of our complex and painful and um, embarrassing history. Mm -hmm. uh, I can see why sometimes we streamline the stories to skim over some stuff. Yeah. So how do you get started doing this kind of research? Tell us a little, I, I mean, obviously. Yeah. Well, for me, it was personal. Um, I was starting to teach Methodist history in the 20th century as in conjunction with polity, and I saw a direct relationship there um, between what was going on in the United States at the time, what was the arguments in the church, which of course you find in the documents of the polity of the church. You know, when you go back to 1956 and you re read the minutes, of the decision about full clergy rights for women, you begin to see the different points of view that are brought to the table and argued about. And so it was at that point that I discovered that none of this was simple, um, you know? And so I have really enjoyed digging more deeply into the text. I love talking about this stuff, <laughs> but I think, but, and I also started working backwards and then in, in the midst of all of this, I discovered Warren Can Candler that my school is named for was an avid segregationist and his brother, a judge argued against the reunification in 1939. So when you start to peel the layers of the onion off one at a time, you begin to see just what the history really was and you know, there's lots of folks who say, oh, we shouldn't be revising history. We're not revising history. What we're doing is uncovering history. The rest of it. The yeah. rest of it. And, you know, the, the adage is hidden, history is written by the victors. And most of our stories have not, uh, many of our stories have not been on the side of the victors. And so, you know, in my own family story, as I discovered, owners of enslaved people um, and Confederate soldiers who died, who I had never heard of. Yes, Devil in the Grove is Absolutely. a great book. That is a super book, you know, and it might be worth us pulling together a bibliography. Um, you know, I found, I found a great, another book. You, you piece it together and it's research. The, war, the Other War of 1812 is about the Northern tier of the state of Florida. And what was going on there? Um, so my email address here, why don't I put it in the A-D-A-N-I-E-6 at emily.edu. 
um, one of my dreams, Beth and uh, Lori and others, is to actually put together a workshop on how to do this digging, um, how, to, how to get started in the research. So if you're interested in something like that, you know, we could, we could do a conference workshop once this, this series is done and, mm -hmm. and people are interested in doing uh, more and more research because it's really bubbling up. Um, that, that might be topic for a future webinar as well. Yes. So yeah. We are running out of time and it occurs to Sorry, me I talked so long. No, 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 no. It's, it's intriguing and there's tons more than we could possibly have done it. This is designed to be an introduction right. and um, an appetizer. The yeah. conference archivist is extraordinarily helpful. Yeah, Judy. Judy is yes. wonderful. Yes. Uh, and I met with Judy. Mel Thrift, very <laughs> helpful for yeah. piecing together um, the history and for teaching us how to do it. Yeah. Um, Thank you again, um, uh, Anne, for doing this. Uh, for the rest of you. Thank you for attending, all of, who all are, all of those who are a, here. There's a ton of folks. I, I do wish we were in person because because uh, y'all are just wonderful people. So find the other allies um, and let's build a tapestry mm -hmm. uh, that is um, going to equip us to be more faithful disciples of Jesus. It is appalling and embarrassing that the church, frankly, became the moral, uh, the moral support for mm -hmm. all kinds of um, uh, uh, incredibly racist activities. Um, Through its own turpitude. I mean, yeah, it did. by doing nothing, it supported it. Um, thank you again. Next month, um, the first Wednesday in June, again, um, an introductory half hour. And I tell you, it's encouraging just to look at the names of the folks who are on and to know that there are others engaged in this work. Um, thank you, uh, Dr. Burkholder, uh, for your um, uh, work in this and for your friendship and for your companionship in this journey. And thanks to each of you. Um, and thanks. sign the pledge, take a workshop, do a pre-conference workshop. Uh, we're weaving this incredible tapestry toward um, a more anti-racist uh, conference and, and indeed the beloved kingdom. Mm -hmm. So again, thank you for being a part of it. And we will see you next month. Bye-bye. Mm, Bye-bye. <laughs>